You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Maddie Telemachus left his body for the first time in the summer of 1995 when he was 14 years old. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that his body expelled him, sending his consciousness flying on a geyser of lust and shame. Just before it happened, he was kneeling in a closet, one sweaty hand pressed to the chalky drywall, his right eye lined up with the hole at the back of an unwired electrical outlet box. On the other side of the wall was his cousin, Mary Alice, and her chubby white blonde friend, Janice Janelle, probably Janelle, the girls, both two years older than him, juniors, women, lay on the bed side by side, propped up on their elbows, facing in his direction. Janelle wore a spangled t-shirt, but Mary Alice, who the year before had announced that she would only respond to malice, wore an oversized red flannel shirt that hung off her shoulder. His eye was drawn to that gaping neck of the shirt, following the swell of skin down, down, down into shadow. He was pretty sure she was wearing a black bra. And that's the lecherous opening of that, that novel. 14-year-old <laughs> Maddie Telemachus spying on his cousin. Daryl Gregory is the author of Pandemonium, which won the IAFA William L. Crawford Award for Fantasy and was nominated for a World Fantasy Award and also the novel's After Party. Raising Stony May Hall, The Devil's Alphabet, the YA horror series Harrison Squared, and the short story collection Unpossible, his new book is Spoonbenders. Thank you for joining me, Daryl. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. I appreciate it. This is a wonderful story of a great American family, which begins with something I think that is really interesting. What you create for us is a stage where an entire American family loses their job in front of most of America, which has got to be the most humiliating thing that could happen to any American. It's so sad. Yeah, to, to lose to lose everything on national television. Um, so the amazing Telemachus family, they're like the Von Trapp family for psychics, and they would be on the road doing psychic feats, and each, one of the, each member of the family has a different ability. Like little Irene is the human lie detector, and Frankie can move small objects with his mind, and Buddy can see the future. And they go on the Mike Douglas show in 1974 where they are debunked and uh, where their tricks go wrong and the whole thing falls apart and it's the end of the act there in 1974. And the rest of the book takes place, you know, 20 years later after this fact in Chicago where the rest of the family is just in shambles. One of the perpetrators of this downfall is a man named G. Randall Archibald. That Randall in there is not a coincidence, is it? That is not a coincidence at all. So one of my heroes is James Randi, the the famous skeptic, uh, stage magician. He doesn't like to use the word debunker, but um, that's how he's considered. He considers himself an investigator of psychic claims. And and, uh, my character, the astounding Archibald, looks a lot like the amazing Randi. And uh, I 
in the acknowledgments of the book, I apologize to James Randi because the the the, the Telemachus family they actually have some powers, and I have to I I said I'm sorry, Mr. Randi, for giving aid and comfort to the enemy, <laughs> but um, I love James Randi so much, and I wanted to put him in the book. You know. One of the things, a really interesting and not obvious decision you make early on in this book is a book that's about psychics can, I think, skew in two different directions. One is supernatural, where we're talking about demons and the afterlife and the explanations for the strange things that people are able to accomplish are somewhat spiritual, religious, right. they're... On the other hand, swing the pendulum over the other way is that the explanation for psychic powers is more science fictional. Right. And that is the, the pull that you choose. And it's not obvious, but I think it makes a big difference in the, the overall tone of the book and is a sense, uh, of, I guess, a piece of steel that runs through it. Right. Well, you know, th there's a long tradition of those kind of stories. It starts with, you know— uh, John Campbell was a was very much into psychics and would have his 1950s stable of authors. He loved to have them include psi powers. He was Campbell believed in them and he wanted them in his science fiction. And there was a time when that was a a common trope in science fiction. There were um, so many you know psi stories like A. Van Vogt's Slan, um, Ted Sturgeon's More Than Human, and that was just something that science fiction did all the time. And then over the years. As people began to realize a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense, um, it got harder and harder to suspend your disbelief, and it fell sort of out of favor. Um, it, and I wanted to come back to those kind of stories about a family with psychic gifts, um, but the only way to tell that story now is to realize that uh, the, the they aren't going to change your life substantially. The 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 ability to bend cutlery is not in huge demand. It's not going to make you a ton of money um, and make it make it really hard to eat in your house. But that's about it. So I was really embracing that kind of the, the sadness of you've come close to powers, um, but they don't really make a difference in your life. Yeah, I wanted to thank you for making it clear that these are not superpowers. <laughs> No, no, they are. These are the least super people. Uh, you know, Maddie, the, who, you know, in the beginning of this book, he's 14 and he feels like he's missed the circus. You know, it, the circus came to town and left. And by the time he's born, everything interesting had stopped happening. And so when he gets the power, to, he can leave his own body. Um, he's thrilled, even though he has to get it through embarrassing ways. Like the only way he can make it happen is through uh, an embarrassing uh pubescent episode um but he uh he's thrilled to sort of be in the family like maybe the magic you know hasn't gone away this is a big family and i think you do a great job of creating this it's a three generations uh, of psychics so talk about uh the inception point uh this is uh teddy and mo yeah, Teddy and Mo, Maureen. Um, so Teddy's basically a con man and a card sharp who who sort of tricks his way into a psychic research uh, uh, experiment in the '60s. Meet uh, cute at at Stargate. <laughs> exactly, and so and and the thing that was you know intriguing to me is that you know we were 
the, the American government was funding these kind of things. MK Ultra was happening in the 60s and the 70s, and, and onward we get op, you know, uh, Project Stargate, where we were investing millions into psychic research. In fact, one reason the story is set in 1995 is that's the year we finally cut off funding for Project Stargate. It went on that long that we were, that we were putting money into this. Um, so as I wanted to talk about, so Teddy and, and Mo meet at this experiment, and Teddy's sure she's the greatest con man he's ever met, um, but she actually has real power. Um, she's a real clairvoyant. And he realizes this will be great um, for our act. And he, when, the, when their children is born and they have these gifts, they go on the road. And, um, yeah, everything's going really well until that fateful Mike Douglas show. <laughs> uh, were, did you ever see any psychics on, on the TV shows? I guess uh, we would have looked for uh, Yuri Geller. Oh, yeah. I was I mean, I remember watching Yuri Geller and I love I'm, I'm glad that on YouTube you can still see these Yuri Geller appearances on the Johnny Carson show. Um, and you could still see like James Randi has collected a bunch of, uh, you know, YouTube videos you can watch about these psychics on television. And of course, they're still on today. There's, you know, people who talk with ghosts and the, the dearly departed um, to offer advice. So I loved that whole process. And and I um, love to read about how they actually pulled off their tricks, how you could actually bend spoons. And, you know, recently I went to a spoon bending seminar in, in L.A. where I could pay $55 to learn uh, seven different ways to use arcane energies to bend spoons. And it was fantastic. Uh, so you're now you're a spoon bender yourself? I am now a spoon bender. And it turns out that all you really need to do is is use one particular form of energy, which is kinetic. Like it turns out people <laughs> get pretty bend good at bending the spoon with your hands and then would attribute it to outside forces. It's it's a it's a beautiful thing to watch. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that you do well is to work in real history and real people. You mentioned Johnny Carson, who, who plays a minor part <laughs> in this book, which I don't want to spoil. But uh, the talk about researching the Project Stargate, because I remember reading uh, all those books about remote viewing in the 90s myself. Oh, yeah, all those books. So all these people who are part of the remote viewing. So remote viewing... Uh, for the listeners, was the Army's program to basically have people use their clairvoyant powers to sort of do psychic spying. They could go vast distances and hopefully find out Russian secrets. And we were very paranoid that the Russians had their own psi program that they were funding. So, of course, we had to also fight back. Um, and this 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 uh, this remote viewing program went on for years, and then when it became declassified, people began writing books, doing lectures about um, how they were... Um, you know, they're unfair, unfairly categorized as a failed program. But so I was reading all those books. And then right after I turned in the final draft of this, the CIA in a Freedom of Information Act uh, request posted all of the Project Stargate documents online. And you can go look at every single um, note. Some of them are redacted. But the lab notes, Yuri Geller's test results, um, all this stuff is online. If you want to pour through all those scanned PDFs, it's amazing. Did you pour through all those scan PDFs? Oh yeah, I went. I didn't pour through all of them because there's thousands. So <laughs> I went and um, started looking at the particular ones that I was interested in. Especially, I wanted to see those Yuri Geller notes, um, and especially the remote viewing notes where they would draw two or three vague shapes, 
And the investigators who were in charge of things would would know that they need to show some results. And one thing Congress found out later is that they were kind of tilting the field. They were sort of saying, oh, yeah, that triangle, that's obviously this mountain and that's near this submarine base. And so it's a score. We, you know, they've successfully identified a submarine. You know, uh, the uh, on the other side of this is Teddy and his card sharp skills, which which also must have required some engaging research. Oh, I love that stuff. Um, yeah, so uh, there's um, a great book called Phantoms at the Card Table about all the techniques that these these incredible card sharps would use, and they would use it not to perform magic tricks, but they were trying to make money. They were working. They were working poker games. So they there's a. So that's a style of card no, tricks. No, wait, back up. So you're not talking. You're not talking about people who are saying I can guess what card. You're talking about people who are sitting down and playing games and essentially using card charts, sharp tricks to cheat. Exactly, okay. and making a living at it. And so <laughs> Teddy Telemachus, he made his living working these poker games as the mechanic. So mm-hmm. the mechanic is the guy who sits at the table, and they don't. People don't know that he's the mechanic, but he's the one making sure that he keeps winning and doesn't win too much and basically runs the game for whoever's hosting the game to make sure the house wins. And so there's there's so many different styles. The um, You know, there's dealing off the bottom, but also there's the second strike, which is you use your thumb to sort of force out the second. You take a peek. You know what the second card in the deck is. You force that one out. Um, there's different ways of marking the cards or slicking the cards with the material or pushing little push pins. Um, in per- certain corners of the cards so you can read them with your thumb so you know exactly what the cards are as you deal them. And these people were doing things that look like telepathy, but it's all just human skill. And I loved you know, uh, reading about that and having Teddy demonstrate how some of this stuff works. This is a, a big family, and I really like the way you've created uh, the the entire cast of characters in this book, even people that are obviously not good, are people that we eventually come to like and respect. Could you talk about creating character arcs so that even kind of people who might like uh, want to uh, do terrible things to your hands <laughs> are, are likable? Yeah, there is there is a, a terrible mobster who does some terrible things. Um, and, but, you know, one thing I learned from one of my uh, teachers uh, years ago, I was at a workshop, the Clarion Workshop, and Kim Stanley Robinson was one of the teachers. And one of the things I learned from him is you have to love all of your characters. And I loved every member of the family. And so every family member gets their own chapters and we sort of rotate through their points of view. So we get some events you learn about a couple times from different angles and you learn more information. And I just wanted to find a voice for every single member of the family, even the ones who are sort of scammers and con artists and desperate Frankie's in debt to the mob and he's desperate for any way out. And then there's also the side characters too who aren't in the family like that, that mobster. Um, there's something I knew the kind of book I was writing was Uh, a little bit lighter. I was thinking about like much ado about nothing. I wanted all these plot lines happening and everything sort of converges in the third act and there's much running around and slamming of doors and then everything comes out happily. I knew that was the kind of book I wanted to write. And I wanted this mobster who's a little bit pathetic when his toupee comes loose while he's trying to threaten people. I mean, so there's something you can do in comedy where you can just take one detail and push it a little further and you edge from scary into kind of hilarious and that was the edge I wanted to ride throughout a lot of the book. 
you do a good job with this, and you are talking about Frankie, and he's a character that when we first meet, we kind of I wasn't that thrilled with him because <laughs> right. he's such a scammer and a loser. Uh, so talk about creating Frankie, who he is, and, and how you put him in the position that he gets himself into. Yeah, Frankie's one of my favorite characters, uh, probably ever, because he's so desperate to, for the one big score. And his only power is moving very small objects, but only when he's not nervous. So he was literally a pinball wizard when he was a teenager, um, as long as people weren't paying too much attention. He could run that pinball around the table and move it with his mind and rack up high scores. Um, and in later life, that powers just completely abandoned him. And so when he finds out Maddie has this power to move beyond uh, his body, his first instinct isn't to comfort his nephew, but to think, wait, how can I use this to get out of debt with the mob? Um, so, yeah, he's a desperate guy, but um, I love him so much. And I wanted people to understand that, like, he's trying to do stuff for his family. He's trying to make money. Like, all he wants is the love and respect of his wife and daughters and he will go to any lengths to sort of, you know, do that and keep his family safe, even if he as he engages really questionable and stupid uh, decisions sometimes. Uh, I I have to ask. I mean, the the men in this book are <laughs> by and large immature. Is there anybody who's grown up? I'm trying to think. If there's any. I think. Uh, is it Clark, the, the guy who helps uh, Destin and Archibald? Oh, yeah, there's Clifford. Clifford, and, right. Clifford is a side character who may be the only mature person in here. Um, every, <laughs> I, I mean, exactly. There's, a, there's the CIA agent Destin Smalls, who's, and he's desperate too because his whole program, his side program, which he really believes in, is about to be canceled. And so he's trying very hard to recruit any Telemachus family member to come back into the government because there's a period where Maureen. Uh, was using her powers uh, for the government, and he wants them back. But you're right. I mean, Teddy Telemachus, he's a, he's a guy in his 70s who now likes to go to grocery stores and fall in love once a day. And he may never talk to the woman, but he likes to look at her and fall in love, and it sort of kicks off. Um, his story sort of kicks off when he when he falls in love with a woman who turns out to be um, the wife of, an, of an, an indicted mobster. And that ties into Frankie's story being being in debt to the mob. Um, Frankie's just desperate. Buddy is terrified of the future. He's always been able to remember the future as well as the past. But there's this day coming up on Labor Day of, at the end of the summer, and he can't see past that date. And he's terrified that something's going to happen to his family. So his entire behavior is inexplicable to the rest of the family. He's busy digging holes in the backyard. They don't know why. He's renovating the house but never finishing. They don't know why. Um, and he and he just and he can't speak about it because he say he's afraid that if he talks about what he knows, he would change what happens. So he's locked into this hell of free will versus duty. I I think you have a really interesting uh, portrait of, of somebody who can see the future. That's a fascinating idea. It's uh, it's closer to Billy Pilgrim being right. unstuck in time than it is to Agnes. Uh, forever who can see the future. Right. I really, so, uh, you know, Buddy's chapters are written in present tense because he's always in the now. He's like mm. Billy Pilgrim. And he every time he wakes up, he has to look around, look for clues to figure out what time period he's in um, <laughs> because he remembers being six years old as well as he remembers being 27. And, and so he's always looking for clues like who's in the house? What time is it? Okay. It's summer. Right. So, and he gets oriented and then he can proceed with his day. Uh, and the women in this book, uh, on the other hand, I think you you really like them. They're very sweet. Uh, I love what you do with Irene. 
She's the, the, the human lie detector. But her more amazing power is her ability to do something that I think, I, well, you know, my accountant could do. <laughs> right. She discovers that she's really good at numbers. And so she's uh, uh, and for her, that's an out. Right. It's uh, so Irene's problem is as the human lie detector. One, it's made relationships really hard. Um, it's impossible to build a relationship when you know immediately when someone speaks that they're lying to you, that you actually do look fat in these pants. Like, you know, it's, it's really hard to build a relationship. But it's also really hard to hold down a job when you can hear when your bosses are lying to you and she has to confront them. And so she's having trouble holding down a job. But her... But she's really good at truth in numbers, and and numbers don't lie. And um, making, um, you know, she finds a real pleasure in uncovering how the mobsters are laundering their money, um, and helping the family out by by doing that. So I really love Irene. Oh, plus I want to say that also it's she's the mother of Maddie, and it's hell on wheels for a. A teenager to have a mom who's a human lie detector. <laughs> I think we all have our moms who we believe they have these powers, but it's just awful. And so they have to. The whole family has to figure out a way to talk to to Irene so they don't tip off that when they're lying. So they ask her lots of things in the form of a question, and she calls them "Stop trebecking me, stop <laughs> say, stop just asking me my questions instead of answering my questions." Uh, I I think that uh, too. This brings up something that I just realized about this book. This book is, although it has all these psychic shenanigans and all these really fun scenes, I think in many ways this is a book about like getting and keeping a job, find, you know, making money. That's always in the background for these people. They're always worried about this. I mean, you know, somebody might, and there's a, a scene uh, where somebody might lose a house. I mean, these are fears that if you're if you live in America and you own the house, the idea that you might lose it, that's like sheer terror. And that's always in the background of this book. It's 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 about working. Yeah, and you know, and that's an important part that that fiction needs to do. I'm always kind of annoyed at these books where people seem to don't worry about money at all. They just go off and have adventures. I'm like, well, who's paying for that plane ticket? Like, where did that come from? And how'd you get time off from work to go, you know, hunting through the pyramids of Egypt? I don't understand how this works because everybody's scrambling all the time. And, um, and also when you're writing a comedy, I mean, comedy gets funnier through desperate need and it gets funnier through sadness in a terrible, terrible way. And I just wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, write a working class book about people trying to get by. Uh, I think that one of the things that we're all trying to get by, too, is being sick. And I, you do a very good job of putting um, Mo in some danger and, and dealing with a, a family illness, I think, in a way that's realistic and sweet. And also, it has all these psychic aftermaths that are really, really engaging. Right. You know, it's, and it's always a tricky thing. So just, I mean, uh, there's no real spoiler to know that Maureen dies back in the 70s. And so the family is dealing with that all through the, you know, the rest of the book. Um, and she was sort of the glue that was holding the family together. Um, and so some things I was interested in are, you know, how do how do you talk to kids about death? And in the seventies, you weren't really doing it. You just, the parents were not talking about what had just happened or that I'm sick or that things um, could get worse. There's that, that, that reticence. And I think that has this ripple effect 
you know, for decades, people trying to deal with it after after the fact after the fact of the death. You're writing a book uh, about psychics, um, and you've clearly researched them some. What are your beliefs <laughs> with regards to this? <laughs> I, I'm guessing they're probably not charitable. No, they're not. Well, you know, I write. You know, I, I write these stories about amazing things happening. Um, I wrote a literary zombie novel, which is probably a, a you know a bad idea because the literary <laughs> people won't read it, and the zombie people were like, "Why is there so much talking about feelings?" Um, but I like to write about the weird. I love to think about what would happen if this was true. I love the fact that that metaphors like she's the human lie detector feels a lot like how it feels when you're trying to hide things from your mom. Um, <laughs> I So I I love all that stuff. Um, wait, what was the question? It I'm was, off in the weeds. <laughs> no, but that's a good well, – those are good weeds to be off of because I, my question was do you believe in that stuff? Oh, right. So Yes or no? Uh, so no. I okay. don't. I'm, yeah, I'm a I'm a raging materialist um, and and a skeptic. I'm I I'm the guy who when people start talking about the healing power of magnets, I kind of roll my eyes. <laughs> this does not make you popular at dinner parties. People have, but when people talk about a premonition that they that they they felt like something bad was going to go on in the plane, and then sure enough, they had terrible turbulence. You know, I'm the guy who has to point out how confirmation bias works. Um, so I am no fun at all. Um, but I like to write about those people. But you write about them in a manner that is fun. So well, that's and, that's and, kind of an interesting twist. And I like to respect the truth. Like for you know, from for in my mind. Um, if the supernatural existed, it wouldn't be supernatural. It would just be nature. We'd be studying it. Quantum physics is very, very odd and looks magical from certain angles, but it works. It's science. So we study it, and there's a reason why. If, if psi powers did work uh, reliably, um, yeah, Google would have a psi research arm. It would be happening. We would have, we would have telepathy on our iPhones uh, today. Yeah, I guess Apple would be having right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the human Bluetooth <laughs> attachment. Exactly. Why wouldn't you? Now, um, but one of the great fun things you can do with uh, psi powers literarily is use them in this kind of metaphorical way and to to discuss things that you just can't talk about and to, to throw imagery around, to throw plot around in a way that allows you to uh, externalize all the things that we don't want to talk about. Right, right. You know, and, and you know, like Maddie's power to move outside his body just sort of reflects the way I sort of felt as a teenager. Like, I felt estranged <laughs> from my own body. Mm -hmm. There's a moment when, in this first chapter, when Maddie goes up in the air and he looks down at his own body for the first time, and he's kind of disgusted. He's like, I'm that chubby guy lying there with the pimples on his jawline? That's me? And I think every teenager, you look in the mirror and you're like, that's me inside that body? What... And and by the way, uh, once you get older, like I am, you realize you're having the same thoughts from the other direction. It's like, <laughs> that's me? That old body? It's like, how did that, this happen? Inside, I'm 26. Uh, so, yeah, that's the great thing about using magic, using science. It, it gives you access to all these metaphors, and you get both things. You get how it would work, how you can work out how it would work to go through uh, a job interview if you could detect all the lies, and you get to talk about what that feels like to the family. One of the things you write at one point, many great sentences in this book. Oh, thanks. Really enjoyable, but, the, but 
Your mother believed in you, transferring that faith to you in the manner of family religions. I thought that was a really interesting observation, that families really do have religions, and more so now that uh, organized religion is kind of falling by the wayside. Oh, yeah, and I think every family has its own mythology. There's a line in there about Maddie grows up, you know, knowing they were psychic the same way they knew they were Catholic, that they were Greek, <laughs> right. and that they were Cubs fans and not Sox fans. So I grew up in Chicago, and certainly growing up as a Cubs fan, that's a religious experience. <laughs> and until recently, <laughs> the point of the religion was that failure was inevitable, that you would show up for your job every day. You do your job, and then you're still mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, you know, by Labor Day. You're out of the game. But you show up next year and you do your job again. And I, um, and then when they started, you know, when they won the World Series, that sort of threw my worldview out of whack. It's like, wait a minute, that's possible to do winning? Um, so this novel has a little bit of hope in it. I was able to revise it right after the Cubs won, and there's a little nod to the, to the Cubs winning the World Series in there uh, at the very end of the, at the, end of the book. I, I, I like that. I thought that was really fun. Um, Talk about uh, the locations for this novel and just uh, creating the place because it it feels so super American no matter whether you live on the East Coast or West Coast. I think you capture, you distill Americana quite well. And it's not an Americana like small towns. Everybody knows each other. No, it's a weird kind of thing. Like the way I grew up... um like if you, it's kind of the suburban experience. So Chicago, you know, they call it Chicago Land because everything's flat. So the city can just sort of keep rolling and rolling across the plains. And when I was a kid, we were on the very edge of the suburbs, and there were fields around us, and and the, and there were so many things alive. There were crawfish and uh, swimming in the ditches. There were huge spiders, tons of garter snakes, and we were on the edge of the prairie. And then that those suburbs kept expanding outward and now people are commuting you know an hour and a half from the very into chicago and so i wanted to write about that suburban experience the way i grew up it's sort of the city's available to you but you're leading these very busy lives surrounded by lots of other people and there are all these stories going on all the time i mean one thing in in researching what was happening in the mob world in chicago they called it the outfit and what was happening in the outfit in the 90s, I was kind of amazed at because I was oblivious to it. Um, but all these mobsters sort of lived in the suburbs and had houses. <laughs> and they would. Uh, there were assassinations that took place on the highway near my house where I grew up. I had no idea this was going on. You sort of got to you, – you, sometimes you find out that one kid's parents were kind of connected uh, – but it wasn't. It was very abstract for me because everybody was just leading a normal American life. Boy, that's really interesting. <laughs> I, I, so, um, you you research the mobsters. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, creating this mob family. Once you, when you research them, you want them to be fun. Yeah. I, well, the the important thing to remember is that it's a family business, right? And people have to put up with their relatives. And um, well, that's interesting, of course, because that's what the telemachuses are too. So it, no, right? It it's fits. the twin of the telemachus. Everybody's trying to work the scam, right? You're just trying to get by. And so, um, you know, so you don't necessarily demonize these people, but you do don't cover up the fact that they will then turn and do terrible things. And there's a few few of those events in the book. Um, but mostly I was thinking of them as people who run a family business and how exasperated, uh, exasperating that can be. And so I set it in 
these taverns that are in Chicago, you know these neighborhood taverns are dimly lit. You know, there's the Budweiser sign in the window. Uh, you're not quite sure what the floor is made of. Maybe it was made of specks, black and white specks at a, at a certain point, but you're not sure what those black specks are anymore. And uh, so I just love that. I, you know, I just love Chicagoland, and I wanted to put those in there. Did you know a Mitzi? Mitzi was such an indelible character. This, even though her part is very, very minor, I just, I just really like that character. Oh yeah, Mitzi's Mitzi runs a tavern where they collect, uh, you know, where they collect the debt money every Friday, and uh, no, I just, um, I knew women like her around the neighborhood, uh, who were these kind of like chain smoking, hard talking women, and I just found them fascinating. My family is pretty quiet. We came, my my parents came from Tennessee and came north for jobs in the '60s, and we were this. Baptist family surrounded by loud, hard-drinking Catholics who were looked like they were having way more fun than my family. And I was, I would go have these overnight sleepovers, and I just thought, wow, this family yells at each other a lot more than my family. This is great. Um, so I wanted to write a book about those kind of families. Uh, another kind of family that you wrote about too, and I think this is becoming more uh, common, is a family where the adult child moves back into the house yeah. with her child and this kind of this book really turns on the relationship constantly between parents and their adult children which is a very different relationship from parents and their little children especially when as it were the men in the family never really ever grow up anyway right and and Teddy who's you know whose house it is keeps thinking his children will leave and then they keep coming back and he's he feels like it's his castle and the peasants keep moving back in he keeps thinking he's going to have his home as his castle um and it never happens and i mean and that's just the you know that's and that's part of you know the working class life it's very hard to get launched and i really like the idea that Teddy even though he complains about Buddy tearing up holes in the backyard, and Irene and Maddie moving back in, and Frankie's you know Frankie always needing to borrow money, um, that irks him. But I love those scenes where they're all together. I love the Thanksgiving scenes. I love the scenes where they're working together as a team, and that I love the way they come together at the end of the book, because that was just really important to me to talk about how some of the best families work. Um, they really do work together. And also, too, this is a wonderful family. They clearly, everybody loves everybody else. But it's not a, a a family where everybody's, like, happy and sweet. No, you can't be treacly. Like, I, so, yeah, my, I, wanted, I wanted those kind of snacks where there may be a little bit of sweetness on the inside, but on the outside it's all crusty and, and savory. <laughs> That's, like, you, like, they people your family does irritate you on a day-to-day basis um but yeah it was the underlying emotion i wanted to get to they've come through a lot together they're still watching out for each other um but they're still annoyed as hell by each other uh, as as the um on on a day-to-day basis each of the children has slightly different uh powers um did you Consider different powers for different people. I mean, uh, might Irene have had something different, or Frankie? Well, yeah. When I was first starting the novel, I was I was going through the list of all the cheesy psi powers. <laughs> you know, so obviously someone had to be able to lift objects, um, though no actual spoon bending actually gets accomplished in the in the course of the book. But other things get moved. Um, 
And I was, and I knew very early on that I wanted Buddy to have this uh, feeling of remembering the future because nostalgia I knew was going to be a big part of the book. Um, so I sort of went down the list. And with like Irene, I'm, I wasn't interested in her being a telepath like, you know, like Professor X in comics and the movies where she could really do a lot of amazing things. I liked the limited form of it that's just being able to detect lies. And that was awful enough. Um, I liked the idea that Maddie could move outside his body but had so little control over it. And that kind of um, almost a superpower, but it's it's not very useful, I just found really attractive. And so I just sort of went through the list and sort of assigning powers to folks and thinking, you know, I spent six months basically just sort of daydreaming about the book, trying to figure out how it would shake out. And these were the powers that seemed to match that personality. You have a lot of fun with Irene, uh, with all the 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 problematic nature of being able to detect lies is that sure if somebody lies to you you can tell it if they know it's a lie but if they don't know or don't believe if they believe what they're telling you even if it is a lie then you this power right. is absolutely no good right and that's the real catch in her powers is that if they honestly believe they seem to be telling the truth she doesn't have access to the absolute truth she only has a access to that weird cognitive thing people do when they lie and so she knows when they're doing that. And that, that makes her good at some card tricks. Um, but it's terrible if you're trying to build a relationship. It's terrible if you're trying to hold down a job. It's terrible. Uh, it's actually, though, it might be a bit helpful with your kids, though. <laughs> yeah, 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 as a parent, she does, at a certain point, you know, she does ask Mandy. She, go, she's, she accuses him. She's like, are you smoking pot? And he says, currently? Um, <laughs> it's those kind of dynamics I wanted to get at. Yeah, and I think that those kind of dynamics are dynamics that occur in a sense, in a sense, in everybody's family. But that the psychic aspect of this book enables you to make those events in and of themselves engaging and give them some kind of life. But also, too, the the plot you know, of this book is very, very clever. It, it happened a lot of it happens in the background. So, uh, talk about creating the the overall plot arc for. A bunch of people. No, right. I wanted, and I spent an awful lot of time on this because even though I wanted to be very character forward, I wanted this reward of a plot that that works out like a like a Shakespearean story, uh, like Much Ado About Nothing, where people are running around and in the last act, all the plot elements all come together, and there's a you know there's a wedding at the end. There's no wedding at the end. We get very close to a wedding at the end, <laughs> um, but I wanted um, so. One thing I wanted to do was lay down all the plot things so you don't notice it, that you're just sort of following along the characters. And the book is about hidden connections. So gradually you realize, oh, this thing that's happening over here, this is connected to this other thing that Buddy is doing over here. And and you realize that there is sort of a master plan running throughout the book where all the plot lines turn out to be connected. And... That's not a book you get to write very often because it sort of stretches, you know, credibility. Um, the, but for this kind of book, I thought this is my one chance to to write this kind of book where there are no coincidences at all. And um, everything's going to come together in that last weekend of Labor Day. It's a novel where the plot occurs by revelation of what has already happened in a sense. Yeah, I wanted. Yeah. You know, I really had to know. 
what has been happening for 20 years and what's been hidden and what gets gradually revealed. The, oh, even the kids in the family do not know everything their father's been up to. Mm. Um, they don't know everything Maureen could do. So she's writing. Um, so Maureen, even though she died in the 70s, um, has the ability to, um, by talking to Buddy, her son who could see the future, he tells her some things that he knows that are going to happen. And she writes letters of advice to her husband saying, look, when this happens, I heard this is going to happen. Here's what I want you to do. <laughs> and she could give advice to her family from beyond the grave. And these letters just sort of show up in the mail. And they're like, oh, here we go again. Mom's still talking at us. <laughs> now, uh, this book, I am I wrong in thinking that this is, I guess, the closest to a normal book you've written. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it, put it that way, but that's just the way it has to go. Well, I mean, I, one of the one of the things I did push in this book. So I've written a lot of science fiction and mm-hmm. and, and and fantasy, and I'm always every single story I write, it doesn't come alive for me unless there's something weird or strange going on. Um, and in this book, um, the weird or strange is something we've all know from watching, you know, hearing about Yuri Geller. We all know about these side powers. So I didn't have to explain very much. And I was and I, the focus has shifted more toward the family. So I have something called the mom test. Mm-hmm. So every book I write, my mom doesn't read science fiction or fantasy, mm-hmm. but she reads my books. God bless her. And so the mom test is she has to be able to understand what the hell is going on. Um <laughs> And she has to be able to understand these characters and why they want what they want. Um, and so if, if mom can read it, enjoy the book, then I feel like, you know, it's accessible to everybody. Well, that makes perfect sense. Uh, do you think that uh, you'll be returning to these characters? Oh, I, you know, I want to. Um, I have no idea what happens next, though. I was so they're trying to make this into a TV show, and I was talking to the screenwriter, and she was explaining, you know, how they were going to break apart the they were doing as a first season how they'd break apart the episodes, and then she said, and in season two, which happens after this book is over, I'm like, what happens in season two? You you, you have a plan for these characters. If you do, it'd be great if you let me know, and uh, that would be very helpful. So I, you know, these characters are very real to me. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with them, you know, two years writing this book. So they're still alive for me. And so they're still sort of hovering out there. I'm not sure what the next story would be because you can't make them too successful because the charm for me is that it's kind of pathetic and it's, <laughs> and the sadness has to be there. Otherwise, it doesn't work for me. If they actually went on and became world famous and ruled the world, I'd be completely uninterested. So I had well, to find the next story. Yeah, I, I think the, the charm in this book really comes from its everydayness, from the fact that these people have to cope with everyday problems and that there are solutions to those everyday problems, in spite of the fact that they have psychic powers, don't necessarily work out a whole lot better than anything you or I might do. Right. And it, and, and in Frankie's case, it kind of ruins his life because he's thinking, surely with this power to move a pinball, um, I got to be able to, to, to make this work somehow. And he has this one chance of making it big he, um, at the roulette table. And uh, but it does not turn out the way he planned. So, um, you know, in some ways it derails him because he's so Frankie's always looking for the next big score. His dad, Telly Telemachus, is always looking for the next big score. Um, And so sometimes it's it's having to give up and that it sort of stopped him from committing to something else that, that he could make work. Um, because the dream of what could have been, how famous we could have been if only that disastrous television show d- and, and the astounding Archibald didn't do a- this terrible damage to our family. We could have been somebody. Um, 
I, I was just, I'm just really interested in that. And you also seem to like kind of fractured families. I mean, uh, Moe's gone. Frankie's kind of, <laughs> even though he's married and living with his family, he's kind of only half there. Uh, <laughs> Irene has to move back in, and she's uncomfortable with with her her new so. Uh, talk about your vision of the family. Uh, yeah, well. First of all, there's no drama if they're really functional and happy, and we'd sit there and watch them be nice to each other through meal after meal. That would be so boring. Um, so they have to be, you know, I was teaching this workshop this past week, a week-long workshop for, for Clarion. It's called Clarion West. It's a great workshop if you're a new writer. Um, and they have a different teacher every week, and I was teaching the first week. And most of my lessons were about drama, which is, a, and all that is is that a character wants something really badly, and every scene ends in failure. Like, it is the failure that drives the plot on. They can have a little win, but then they realize there's a larger win that's still out of reach, and they have to change what they're doing. And it's that constant struggle is the really interesting thing. So, yeah, my take on families is that, yeah, that, they, that there's, uh, they're under pressure, especially in these economic times. And, and that's where also not only where the love is, but that's, that's, where, the, that's where the comedy is as well. The failure begets the love, or at least helps. <laughs> helps. Or, that's or, how you test love, right? It's yeah. like who's there for you when you're absolutely collapsing and falling on the ground? Who's there at the very end when no one else will pick you up? The new book by Daryl Gregory is Spoonbenders. Thank you for joining me, Daryl. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. This is great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.